Welcome to Medical Minefield, where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman, health editor at The Mail on Sunday, and with me today, as ever, is The Mail on Sunday's deputy health editor, Eve Simmons. Hello. So we've had a bit of a result with our campaign. We have. Today, NHS England issued new guidance. They have said that GP practices must ensure they are offering face-to-face appointments. They say patients and doctors should come to a decision together as to what kind of consultation is had and that practices should respect preferences for face-to-face care unless there's a good clinical reason to the contrary. Mm. I mean, this is something we've been calling for for eight months now. It seemed strange that given that the whole of the rest of the uh, country had got back to normal last October and then once again this year after the second wave the practices were still only offering remote consultations and, and this was causing a great deal of misery amongst readers. Yeah and we've had a large mailbag which has just grown continuously since the end of last year with many readers saying that they just cannot get in to see their GP telling some really worrying stories. You know, I would encourage anyone to keep writing to us, uh, keep telling us stories. You know, from Monday, things should start to return to normal. We really hope they do, you know, for the sake of patients, but also GPs who've really been suffering under this system uh, in which they're being inundated with e-consults and emails and anyone who works in a system where they get tons of emails will know that this is quite stressful. Mm. I think it's really important to highlight the patient voice here as well because we've been accused in the past few days of sort of guiding this story. Manufacturing the story. Well yeah that's that's a better way of putting it. Um, I mean that's absolute rubbish. This story has come from people contacting us. I have no experience of this myself. I think the digital system was great. I was a big advocate for it you know. Exactly. I mean we wouldn't be writing about it if we hadn't had hundreds and hundreds of letters from readers telling us things that we simply cannot ignore. You know, it's something that needs to be brought to the attention of the public, which is why we publish stories about it. This is what we're here for. People have now listened and, you know, that's great. But first, I think we should hear from someone who's been an important voice in this debate. Uh, Professor Dame Claire Gerarda, former chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners. Thank you very much for finding some time to talk to us. Pleasure. NHS England today issued new guidance to GPs saying practices must ensure they're offering face-to-face appointments uh, and that they should respect preferences for face-to-face care unless there is a good clinical reason to the contrary, such as COVID symptoms. Professor Gerarda, you've long been an advocate of the digital and remote way of working. What was wrong with the old system? Oh, well, listen, number one, I don't think I've ever denied that we need to give people choice. OK, so we need to be absolutely clear. Do you know, I've been a GP long enough to remember that we must not romanticise the past. So where a patient maybe on a zero hour wage had to spend the whole day waiting for a 10 minute appointment or you had to have that scramble for the 8am phone as as the the phone line, or even have to wait four weeks to get an appointment. So let's not romanticise the past, please. Let's actually work on and make good of what the pandemic has shown us and what the pandemic has shown us. And on the whole, and I I admire the the Mail on Sunday for their piece, but what, what the pandemic has shown us is that actually digital first or a digital offering 
is very, very, very well taken up by the vast majority of patients. So, for example, I do have a conflict of interest in this space, as you know, but we've gone from we've gone a thousand percent increase in the number of people using our e-consult system. So we're having about one and a half million per month versus, uh, and you can do the math. So people like it. They like it especially for those things called transactions. So for example, if you know you need a sick certificate or a repeat prescription, or you might, for example, need a, a follow-up uh, for a referral at the hospital, much better to fill in a safe digital consultation an algorithm. But even if you've got a new symptom, so you've got back pain, why not start digitally if you want? And what our system does is it goes through a, a, what's called an algorithm, safely guides you through. It, it helps because it removes some of the red flags if there's something that's worrying. It, it takes you out of the system. So, but it must not replace face-to-face. -face. And I've never been against face-to-face. I love being a GP. I love seeing, smelling, touching, sensing, feeling in the right way my patients. But I also want to make sure that we move with the future, that actually the days of a surgery full of patients, now think about it, pre-pandemic, a whole surgery full of very sick people with rashes and coughs and colds and viruses and illnesses, people in the throes of, of serious illnesses, waiting in the same space. No, we will never go back to that. We will go back to a very much better managed system that helps to put people in the right queue at the right time, of which digital will help. I mean, that sounds ideal, but, you know, something is obviously going wrong right now uh, with this system. We've never had a mailbag like this. Yes, yeah, I'll tell you what's going wrong. So I'll tell you what's going wrong. Don't blame the postman for delivering more cards at Christmas. All right. What's going wrong is that the focus is entirely on hospitals. What has been the message throughout the pandemic? Protect the NHS. It actually means protect hospitals, protect accident emergency, protect ITU. Nobody, but nobody has protected my profession. So what we've actually done is the reverse. We've blamed GPs. You're constantly saying we're, we're closed. We're not working hard enough. We're lazy. We're fat cacks, etc. So what actually we're doing at the moment is projecting the, 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 the criticism into something that's easy to put it into, i.e. cannot get a face-to-face -face appointment. If we didn't have digital, you'd just have clogged up phone lines and you wouldn't be able to get through. What we really need to be doing now is to protect general practice. We need more GPs spending longer with their patients and community, and we need hospital doctors and hospital staff to understand that general practice is at its tipping point. And bear in mind, I've been a GP for 31 years. I run a service for mentally ill doctors. I have never, ever seen it as bad. So the answer isn't to remove digital. The answer is to address the problems that are going on in my profession. First of all, I'd like to say that we've gone to great lengths to uh, make sure we emphasise how valued GPs are and that it is not a case of blaming GPs. The situation, as our reporter has said throughout, is in ideal for both GPs and patients. Um, and very many of the patients, and something we've reported time and again when we've come to this subject, very many of the patients speak very highly of their GPs. So it's not an us versus them. It's more of a kind well, of, of course uh, you There's know... There's a lot going wrong at the moment. There is a lot right. going wrong. And I, I, listen, I, I'm not critical of this mail on Saturday. I think you do very honest reporting. And what it is at the moment is that we pick 
on an issue, which is uh, in the past, it was what's called advanced access, where you had to ring on the day, then it was the telephone system, then it was all, and now it's on digital. What we really should be focusing on is how do we make sure that the jewel in the crown of the NHS, which is general practice, what makes the NHS safe, accessible and fair, continues, and how can we actually alert the press uh, the patients, the politicians, that unless we protect general practice, you will be waiting far, far longer and your, 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 your and listeners will be waiting. Yeah, and there's a huge problem with burnout and GPs leaving the service or people retiring early. And suicide. And well, absolutely, I mean, awful stress that people are and under. And I look after them. And I, and I look yeah. after them. So, so apologies if I, if I do appear to be emotional about this. I, I am seeing and every single day, I, I've got a text from a patient. It's actually via somebody else. But of a patient writing to her friend saying that she went to see her GP who basically burst into tears. Now, we can't be in the situation where doctors are crying in their consulting room because they can't deal with the workload. Uh, and it's not about patient bashing or it's about saying we have to sort this. This is not about protecting A&E or hospitals. It's about protecting the front door of the health service. And if we don't protect the front door of the health service, then I'm afraid all of us are going to suffer. But is digital the solution? Is this going to solve the problem? Not entirely, of course not. It's because the workload, as many GPs are now finding, so digital does reduce if it's used properly some of the inbox for the GP but because the inbox is so vast what it's doing is it's making the GP look at digital consultation saying oh not another set of work but also because it's a much simpler way for patients to consult there are some patients who maybe after half an hour's illness are, are using that that way and and if you like clogging up that system but fundamentally digital as with digital banks by the way and about all of our digital world helps and i go back to do we want to widen inequalities which is what the old system had so if you were elderly you couldn't get through on the phone if you were uh, in any way not able to understand how to, to use the phone system or you couldn't use it if you needed to queue all day and you were on a zero hour wage you lost income so the, the old system was more unfair than the new system but what we have to do is to make the new system work and when i was thinking about what to say to you i was struck by if you remember well you don't remember nor do i but when cars first came in and when cars first came in so threatening did they seem that somebody used to walk in front of them with a red flag to make sure they didn't go so fast and so we didn't say well let's throw out cars what we did was actually start to say well cars are very good let's see how we can use them the same with digital it's not the entire solution but the, but the problem isn't digital. The problem is not enough GPs. Claire, I think what people are most worried about is the loss of the human touch to the entire situation. And it's an integral part. You learn in, in medical school that to make a diagnosis, you have to examine a patient in some way. Um, you're <laughs> losing that with this system, aren't well, you? Well, again, I think we've got to be really careful if you're assuming that seeing somebody face to face is the only way of consulting, then that's absolutely not true. We've had telephone. But it's the way that you're trained to make a diagnosis, isn't it? As a GP, I'm trained to make a diagnosis on the history and what the patient tells me. And the system that we use, that we've developed, allows the patient to tell their story in their own words using, a, as I said, a safe algorithm. And then the GP can pick up that story and uh, either contact the patient by the telephone or ask that patient to come in. So it doesn't take away telling the story. What you're actually saying is the human touch of medicine. 
And you're absolutely right. Uh, but again, I don't want us to romanticize the past. The past wasn't all good. And what we need to make sure is that for some patients, spending a whole day to receive a, a repeat prescription of a contraceptive pill is not actually what they want. But actually, to be honest, I've missed the human touch of my patients during the pandemic. I adore seeing patients. That sounds really odd. And my colleagues miss the human touch. The problem is my colleagues are drowning in work. And if a doctor is bursting into tears in a consultation, that's not right. So we're on the same page as this. We want to make this work for patients. We want to make it work for the practice. We want to make it work for the profession and the NHS. But to, to assume that digital is the problem, I think is missing the point. The problem is we don't have enough GPs. The investment has gone almost entirely into hospitals. The, the spotlight is always into these heroic high-tech hospitals and, and ignoring general practitioners till there's something that people want to tell us is wrong about us. And I feel you're echoing what Professor Martin Marshall, who's the current chair of, of the RCGP, said last week to this podcast, that ultimately it's policymakers that really now need to sit up and realise that this isn't going to solve the problems of oversubscribed GPs. It could add to part of the solution, but there needs to be, I suppose, more funding. Well, I was very happy to invite this mail on Sunday uh, to come and spend a day with a GP to see that they're not sitting there twiddling their thumbs. They're, they're you know, back-to-back work. And you can actually see the sort of work that we're doing that really, when I started in general practice, was almost entirely done by hospital specialists. So what I do in mental health was done by psychiatrists. What I do in, in people's hearts was done by cardiologists. So what I'm doing today was done by maybe nine consultants for the same patient. I'm doing that in 10 minutes on one patient. So it's important that people also see what we're doing and how complex we're doing it. And yet we're still only given the 10 minutes or the funding for 10 minutes. If I spend half an hour, I've got to spend three times as long in the practice. But maybe the mail on Sunday, I know it doesn't make good television because there's nothing to, to film in a sense, but maybe it is important that journalists come and spend the day and actually see what a GP does and how digital fits into that, how digital helps, how video consultations are helping and, and, and even how, how group consultations are helping. So the invitation's there for you. But it would be good if we actually turn the spotlight onto general practitioners and general practice in a positive way, in a help, which is what you're doing in the mail on Sunday and actually help us to find a, a solution to this. Well, look, we, we may well take you up on your offer and uh, thank you so much for finding some time to talk to us. Well, that got quite heated. It's clearly something she's incredibly passionate about and she wants to make her point. Her I decision. absolutely understand mm. what she's saying. You know, no one is, is blaming GPs for this and it must feel like an attack, especially because they're trying hard to do the right thing by everyone in really difficult circumstances still. Absolutely. After having had what must have been the year from hell like everyone else in the NHS. Mm. So, you know, you can't forget all that. I thought it was interesting what she was saying about how GPs are always viewed differently from other specialties and that it True. always gets personal with GPs. But like, it's because they're so, you know, they're they are front door to, to the NHS. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. But, you know, there are doctors who are highly critical of this situation and you've got one of them on the line right now. I do. Joining me now is Dr Alison George, who is a GP working in emergency medicine and urgent treatment centres. 
Dr George, you're one of the few GPs who are speaking out against the shift to remote consultations. What do your doctor colleagues say about that? I would say the response has been quite mixed. There are a number of doctors that I've spoken to personally or read accounts of on social media who agree with me completely. And then there are also others who feel that remote consulting and the total triage model has been extremely good for their, where they're working. But I don't think that changes the fact that for patients, the feeling I would say in the main is that it is not working very well. And so what would you say then to the doctors who say it is working perfectly? So where I work in, in an A&E setting, I see quite a lot of patients who would have been better dealt with by their own GP. And for whatever reason, and there's a multiple reasons, they have not been able to access a face-to-face appointment or even sometimes a telephone appointment because of the sheer sort of volume of appointments required. So the problem is that in some practices, they seem to have got this working better than others. And what we see is certain practices where the patients are are regularly coming up to A&E and other practices where we don't see very many from them at all. Now, that's not necessarily a comment on how well they're doing anything. It's just that the access might be different. You know, when you ring up and try and make an appointment, the the way you go through the different uh, things on the phone or the email access might be more complicated in different settings. So certainly one of the fundamental problems is the access that patients have. And if you've got any reason that you might struggle, you know, any disability, you, you might have, have a hearing problem, you might not be very computer savvy, you might have dementia or be very frail, it's harder to access care at every time. And you've also spoke, you've spoken previously about some of the sort of downfalls of remote consultations. Can you kind of give us an example or a few examples about where it might be inappropriate or where it, may, it might fall short? So there's a whole range. I mean, there's a lot of reasons on the patient side that I think it falls short. I mean, confidentiality is a a big problem. So if you're dealing with talking to someone in their home and they live in a very small home with just a couple of rooms, how can they be sure that their their discussion is confidential? There's safety. um, you, you, You miss out on a lot of visual cues and you make judgments about people from the sound of their voice and from what you're hearing but you're not seeing that in front of you so uh, a classic example young man 19 previously fit and well no medical history with a sore throat now he came to casualty because he was uh, a student and he walked in he looked okay when i called him from the waiting room actually he had sepsis he was very very unwell his observations were Well, basically, his blood pressure was unrecordable and his heart rate was going incredibly fast and he had a high temperature. If he'd been spoken to on the phone or even by uh, dealt with by email, the, the risk is that he could have photographed his throat and sent a photograph. That would have been, you know, that's what often happens. He was speaking clearly. He was able to give me a clear history. But over the phone or by email, I wouldn't have known that his heart rate was going incredibly fast or that his blood pressure was Uh, was very low and so he might have been prescribed a prescription sent to a chemist and it might have been okay but in fact this you know young man was was very poorly and needed immediate uh, and urgent care so that's one example where we make a, a sort of subconscious judgment that someone 19 year old you know previously fit and well they can be managed safely but actually whilst more of them can be managed safely, that doesn't mean that all of them can be managed safely. So there's a sort of danger that we become a bit relaxed 
facts about who we're talking to. Another example of a, of a lady I saw recently who basically in her 40s, again, previously fit and well, came into a &E talking really very, very strange, saying very strange things, uh, really sounded as if she was sort of almost psychotic. She denied every physical symptom that you asked. She, she denied everything, sort of like UTI symptoms, chest infections, all that sort of thing, denied them all was acting quite oddly as well, carrying her shoes, walking barefoot in a strange way. If I'd spoken to her on the phone, there's a strong chance that I might have thought she had a psychiatric problem and done a referral to the crisis team who would have probably seen her within 24 or 48 hours. I decided at the end of chatting to her, she looked fine in herself, but I decided to do all her um, observations. And in fact, she had an incredibly fast pulse. She had a high temperature. And again, she was actually very poorly. She had an infection causing, basically she had delirium rather than a psychosis. But that could have easily been dealt with differently and the outcome might have been very different. So when you remove all the visual cues that you get and, and the examination, you go down a dangerous path where you're making a best judgment instead of obviously a judgment with all the facts in front of you, which is why I use the blindfold sort of analogy, because if you think of covering up your eyes and then talking to a patient, but you can't actually see anything about them, you know, immediately you start of trying to do that, it becomes much harder. But playing devil's advocate, there's always mm -hmm. going to be patients who will have problems that are missed by a GP, even when they're mm -hmm. in a face-to-face -face appointment. There's nothing to say yeah. that that some of these problems like the young man you mentioned would have been picked up had he seen his GP face to face. Yeah, I accept that. But I think the, the number will be much higher if we carry on with this model as a overall model. So I think there are, there are certainly situations where, or rather problems that can be dealt with quite safely using this model. So sick notes, repeat medication for fairly straightforward conditions, reviews of fairly straightforward sort of stable chronic conditions that have been documented well before they can be dealt with you know in a five or ten minute phone call quite safely in the main but any new problem and even it, as I say in young people any new problem you risk you've only got half the information so where as soon as someone walks in you look at the way they're walking you look at the way they're dressed you look at whether they're clean or not you know caring for themselves you think, do they smell of alcohol or do they look as if they've been taking drugs? Then the way they engage with you, do they make eye contact? Do they talk freely? Do, you know, there's um, multiple things. That's even before you actually examine somebody. That's literally as they walk towards you and, and come and sit down in the room. All that information, you can't get that over the phone or by email. You, so you have to, if you're going to do it really safely, you actually have to ask all those questions which would be incredibly time consuming so you don't so what happens is you don't ask all those questions because it's just not possible and therefore actually to do the job well well you either end up doing it you know without some of the information or you take a lot longer doing it so it can actually be more time consuming than if you just had that person in for 10 minutes in your room dr alison george thanks so much for joining us <music> Hi, 
Sorry to interrupt your listening, but there's another great podcast from the Mail on Sunday you might want to try. Liz Jones's Diary, the podcast, offering a weekly look into the life of Britain's most unfiltered columnist. That's me. Find us at mailplus.co.uk. Eve, I just want to read out another letter uh, that we received this week in response to our article. It really struck me as as a, another example of why this situation is is not working. A chap named Gordon Johnson from Luton. He says, "I'm in my 80s. My wife for several years has had a problem with rheumatoid arthritis, and because of lockdown, it has got considerably worse. Our surgery has been shut since March, um, and I'm guessing that's March last year." Mm. After spending nearly an hour on the phone, I was told to ring back in the afternoon as there were no more appointments. Having done so, I was then told afternoons were emergency only and ring back again in the morning. I went to the surgery in the morning and spoke to the receptionist at the window, but was told I could not make an appointment at the window. I had to ring in. When I asked where I should ring, they said, here. The person I spoke to was the one that took appointments on the phone. So he called the receptionist that he'd spoken to moments ago. Eventually, he spoke on the phone to a doctor who prescribed his wife painkillers, um, but they made her feel ill. Um, he goes on to say, another call, they reduced the strength, um, and uh, I also told them that she'd got a pain under her shoulder blade, but put it down to the way she slept. They put, must have put it down to the way she slept. At this stage, she'd developed a very croaky voice. My wife died suddenly in bed on Sunday morning. Paramedics were there in four minutes, uh, they took her to hospital in Dunstable. I was later informed she died of pneumonia. And then he's he's asking at the end, had she seen a doctor a week or more before face to face? You know, would they immediately realise the problem? And you're just gonna he's just gonna be left wondering that for the rest of his life. I mean, really, that's what's it? so tragic about it, isn't it? It's actually not the answer to the question that's important. It's the fact that he he has that question hanging over him to ask for the the rest of his life. And that's what I was saying, you know, we hope to be able to say of our doctors, you know, we know they're not magicians, but we like to say, you know, they did everything they could. And, you know, when they say that to us, we want to believe them. And it's very hard to be confident that a doctor has, has done everything that they could when we don't know what they're doing when they're looking at a e-consult form or speaking to you over the phone. And these stories, you know, I've picked out this because it's the most dramatic, you know, of ones that I've read in the last couple of hours. But in the main, they're, they're more everyday examples of feeling like the doctor's not able to do everything they could. And what it does is it erodes trust between the doctor and the patient. And doctors are hugely trusted. You know, they're, they're amongst or the most trusted profession. And of course they are. You know, we, we, we entrust them with our lives. And if we begin to lose that trust, God forbid, what would happen if people didn't listen to their doctors? Yeah. Even more so than they don't at the moment. We already have a problem with people not going to the doctor because they're embarrassed. And then if you add to that the problem of not going to the doctor because you don't trust that you're going to get an answer or, or even, you know, be respected or be listened to, that's a really worrying problem. I mean, ultimately, the thing that keeps being said is that it's not the responsibility of GPs, which of course it isn't. Uh, you know, it, this is the remit of government. Um, and government must realise as great an idea as digital and click-first triage services are, 
they can only work in conjunction with a, a properly funded, well-manned GP service that is able to see patients face-to-face and on the phone and using e-consults all at the same time. And that will require investment and time. That's the only solution to any of this. Absolutely. And I think training is key as well, because a lot of these problems seem to be, I'm not sure who's entrusted with various bits of the triage, because it seems like certain patients are having to go through receptionists and then having a nurse look at their their reconsult form and and then uh, one patient said that they had to wait four weeks for a referral to a vascular clinic after Mm. sending in um well calling up on the on the phone and discussing problems with her swollen toes and then the form was sent to the wrong clinic and she then had to wait another four weeks for another Mm. referral these kind of logistical problems keep cropping up i mean having worked as a doctor's receptionist myself Mm -hmm. i would never have felt confident and I still you know I mean we write about this stuff week in week out but I would not feel confident triaging someone and um, you know I really think it's a you know it's a specialist medical set of decisions that have to be made you know it's not for lay people to to do that completely I'd like to finish up with a, a, a long and rambling anecdote from my dad mm-hmm. um, who is now uh, retired but was a GP and he often tells this story He went to visit an elderly patient who had been complaining about uh, various different things and and needed a home visit. Uh, Went to see her and, you know, gave her the all clear and checked her out and listened to her her bits and all all of that kind of stuff. Um, And at the end of the consultation, she said, would you mind awfully, doctor, seeing my son? He's in the next room. He's had a terribly sore throat and he can't speak now. Um, So my dad uh, went next door um, and examined this chap's throat and saw he had something called, I think it's called uh, epiglottitis. Oh, what's that? Um, So the dangly bit at the back of your throat. Oh, yeah. If you get a throat infection, it can become so enlarged and swollen. It's actually uh, a very common cause of uh, sudden acute asphyxiation. People can choke on it very rapidly, lose consciousness and then die. That's it, lights out. And my dad always says, you know, he considered whether to drive the guy to hospital and then thought, actually, you know, these things could be quite rapidly serious. I'm going to call an ambulance. He called the ambulance uh, and then went on his way. He got a phone call uh, a couple of days later, I think a discharge letter or something like that. And the young man had uh, gone into respiratory arrest in the ambulance. They'd been able to intubate him. I think I said that right. That's put you on a ventilator, essentially. They, yeah, they shove a tube yeah. down your throat to make sure you can breathe, even if something's blocking your throat, and saved his life. But, you know, if he hadn't have been looked at, if that moment hadn't have happened because of the presence of the doctor, he would have died. Mm. And my dad obviously loves telling that story, but mm. it has a very serious point. And, you know, I spoke to him just before uh, we came on air just to clarify the story. And, um, you know, he's he's very much uh, behind our campaign, despite being retired. But, you know, he says it's just obvious. Mm. These things are just obvious. Of course, you must see a patient face to face. So, you know, that's uh, that's his story. (laughs) 
Fascinating. <laughs> it's really interesting, isn't it? Because there are, you know, the majority of GPs will say, of course, exactly what your dad said, that, that we need to be seeing patients face to face. But then the letters that we get from patients recount stories of, you know, conversations they've had with GPs and with receptionists that just sound absolutely shocking. And it's almost unbelievable the things that they're telling us that doctors are saying to them. So it's clearly it's a postcode lottery, isn't it, as many things are in healthcare. Mm. Well, it feels like people are listening. We're going to keep reporting on this and please do keep writing to us and telling us your stories. That's all we've got time for this week. You'll find all the latest health news in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday and visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. And you can follow us on Twitter by searching at mailplus. We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then. Goodbye.